Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, motivational speaker, full-time psychology student, mama four, and military spouse. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and real stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey guys, today I'm here with Rachel. Rachel believes in the power of the human spirit to overcome, to thrive, and to find deep joy in life. And because of that, she pours out her heart to her community of 300,000 inspired moms. Well, we have a lot of inspired women, and I would say good like half of them are inspired moms, so you're in the right place, Rachel. Awesome. Uh, She is the writer behind the site findingjoy.net, which we'll link up in the show notes, and the author of The Brave Art of Motherhood. Her articles have been translated into over 25 languages. Her site reaches millions of visitors per month. Her content has been featured in The Huffington's Post, iVillage, The Today Show, Star Tribune, iVillage, again, we had, we, had, we, had, we had a repeat. That's my fault for not like proofreading first. Um, stuff, New Zealand, Pop Sugar, Motherly, Parents, What to Expect, NBC Parents, IJR, Dr. Green, and many more. She speaks worldwide, encouraging moms and entrepreneurs to live each day with pur- purpose and drive. Beyond that, she's a single mom of seven and calls Nashville, Tennessee her home. And I love Nashville. I was there a couple years ago. Uh, Tennessee is really beautiful. And that was one of our places that we're like, maybe we'll settle in. But now that like I haven't been around my family for so long, I'm trying to convince my husband, can we stay north? Can we please? Because I'd like to be around my family. My, my sister and I are, have grown really close. And I'm like, I don't want to leave her again. So moving to Connecticut will be good for me. <laughs> it's good. It's good. I mean, I do love Nashville. I actually left my family in Minneapolis, in Minnesota to move to Nashville. But when you move from the North to the South, everybody's like, Hey, winter vacation spot. So I see them a lot. Yeah, no, exactly. That's how uh, people I know have been. Like I've lived here eight years and a lot of people were like, I'd love to come visit you. Only yeah, only a few have actually made the trek. Like they like to talk like they're going to come. But in Virginia, we're not as warm as Tennessee. So you really are only good to come and like be in the ocean from like May to like October. Um, anything beyond that, it's going to be really freaking cold. Um, so I always tell people, don't come here for spring break. That's not a good idea. It's, it's not a good spring break destination. Um, so Rachel, enough about me. Let's talk about you. Take us back. Uh, You're a mom of seven and you've been a single mom of seven. So tell us a little bit about what that was like, about your journey, what you went through. All right. Well, I am the mom of seven. People always like ask me to repeat that. So I do. My youngest now is nine. My oldest will be 23. And I've been a single mom of seven now for almost seven years. So it's been a while. Uh, And in fact, just today I was taking a walk and I was like, trying to remember my life before. And it was just this bizarre space of like, almost like you can no longer see it in the rearview mirror anymore mm-hmm. because I had moved so many years beyond it. But I got married when I was really young. I was 20, had my first child when I was 21, uh, was married for 17 years. So now you guys can probably figure out I'm, I'm in my mid forties and, uh, Yeah, I I really poured myself into motherhood and trying to keep everything going, but I I hit a lot of stuff. I hit deep financial issues uh, that we filed taxes were always below the poverty line. 
uh, deep fear, deep insecurities. And seven years ago, I came face to face with all of it and decided, you know what? I don't want to teach my kids that this is the normal way of living and took control of my life again. And that's where I am now. Now, did you come from a family that's in poverty? I did not. I did not. Lots of people ask me that. My parents were both uh, employed. In fact, my mom grew up on a farm and was the first of her family to go to college. And she tells stories about going to college in Southern Minnesota, being the only female in the male business classes and how hard it was. And so my, I have this beautiful story of my parents working exceptionally hard to provide for us kids. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, I asked because, you know, I, we talk about the cycle of poverty, how people have struggled to get out of it. And, and you kind of touched on that a little bit about how you didn't want to teach your kids that because it is harder. It's a mentality. It's also that people in poverty are not provided as, as many opportunities as people who are a little better well off, even if it is lower middle class. Um, we're talking about below the poverty line here. So tell us a little bit about what it was like living in poverty. What was the kind of things that you guys experienced? Because somebody listening may have no idea. Maybe they have never experienced food insecurity. Maybe they've never had to worry about swiping that um, EBT card, you know, in line or whatever that might be, whatever you experienced. What was that like for you? You know, it's an interesting place. I think the thing about poverty is a lot of us have this preconceived idea what it looks like. And it's so different than what we had decided on. Because I always tell people from the outside, people wouldn't have really known the depth of the financial issues that we were living with. They would have seen and thought, hmm, they've got it together. Maybe they're struggling a little bit, but they wouldn't have known there's 18 cents or something in my checking account at that moment. Or creditors were coming after me. Or like you were saying, there's a lot of, I would say, labels put on people that don't have money. Uh, what, there was like this idea like, I felt like I wasn't smart enough. People would look like, oh, well, how did you get to that spot? And so that was part of the big part for me of healing from it was deciding that those labels didn't define me, that it was just a cycle that I was stuck in. And I really, really didn't want my, like you and I talked about, I didn't want the kids realizing that this was normal, that I was worried that somebody's going to come to the door to turn off the gas or that I'm fretting over the bills all the time, or I couldn't sleep because it was some, we, there was uh, three years of back taxes. And that was very, very frightening. And it was a friend of mine that said, listen, you have to take control of this. Like you cannot keep pushing it off that it's not your role, your responsibility. You need to you need to buckle down and do it. And it really meant that I dropped all the paradigms of what I thought my life would be like and decided to break that cycle really before it started. Yeah. I grew up in a household. I wouldn't say that we we're in poverty. We're definitely lower middle class or upper lower class. So we weren't ever the person that was like low enough, you know, to like get um, help. And my parents never let us know that we had lack, but now looking back, I can tell. And when my parents divorced, uh, my mom ended up getting really sick and we ended up, that was the first time we were on food stamps. And mm -hmm. that was the most embarrassing thing is to go in because people give you the worst looks in the world. And for years I was on food stamps. So I was a single mom. And then I ended up in a relationship where we just did not have the money. He was blowing it on drugs and alcohol and working under the table. And so I was on food stamps for years and years and years. And it was 
a difficult thing to deal with because you're right. Nobody looking on the outside, unless they saw me in the store wiping, swiping that card actually knew, but it was like this constant worry of how are we going to make this happen? Like, how are we going to put gas in the car? How are we going to do all of these things? And, and my ex was even selling drugs because he tried to convince me that I didn't need a job. And really now it was an abusive situation. So now I know there's a reason behind that. Um, so it is a difficult, and I, I, I wanted people to really understand is this is not a place people don't choose. They're not like, I'm going to be poor. You right. Know? <laughs> right. Like, wow, that's what I want for my life. You know what you said? That's really eye opening. It's an insight of when you don't have enough is it's all consuming. Mm-hmm. Like I've written about, if you ever see a mom at the grocery store, rearranging her food in the cart. It's not because she's just trying to make more room. There's a good chance she's like I was counting everything. I mean, I Mm -hmm. could keep that tally in my head so well. And I would even put them on the belt, the little whatever conveyor part, in an order that if I went over my total, I could say, oh, you know what? I changed my mind on that last item. And it's exhausting that constantly living, worrying about the card going through, worrying about that you're going to go over. And to me, I felt like everybody was paying attention, like they knew, even though they probably had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only time I ever got dirty looks is, you know, when I'm like, I was on uh, WIC at one point in time for my babies and my baby at the time and like having to give them that little slip of paper that said I could buy this certain thing and people would look at you like, what kind of person are you to have to be on this program? And in all reality, WIC wasn't actually, you didn't even have to be in poverty. Like you just had to be like in a lower income class. So, I mean, even people who didn't get um, public assistance got WIC, but still you got those judgmental looks. And it was so difficult to go through that because you're like, I'm not this person that you think I am, the stereotype you have in my head. I am not that person. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, of almost feeling like you have to prove worth And it wasn't until I realized I don't need to prove my worth to anybody. Like they don't need to judge me. And because the longer you hold on, like for me, the longer I held on to that shame, that aspect of I'm not worth it, I'm messing up, the the harder it was to change. And so it was almost like when everything fell apart in my life, I always give the analogy of it's like every single plate fell. Everybody got to see everything. But then I had the freedom and the power to pick and choose what plates I wanted to pick up again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was the best moment where I could be like, you know what? I'm not going there. I am not picking that up again, but you have to let them drop. You have to like be willing to say, here I am. This is my life. And then when you find out, you know, the truth is everybody, I've never met somebody that's like, my life is so perfect. I can't. Right. See it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So tell us a little bit about that rock bottom moment when you decided, we talked about you being a single mom. And when you were talking about all this, you said you were married. So when was that moment that you were like, you know what, I need to get out of the situation I'm in and I have to do something better for me and my children. You know, what's interesting. So what's interesting about that is from the outside, people always say the divorce was the pinnacle moment because Mm -hmm. they only see what they can see. Right. And I would say where I had the moment of I need to take control of life was good two years prior to that, two and a half years. And it's not that I just was like, I'm going to take control of the life, my life and the end, this is the end. It was a long time of trying to work, if we could work together to fix it. But there comes a point where 
you just have to decide like, I have to change this from not just for myself, but for my kids and to break, I guess, break what I thought my life would be like. I never, you know, no one ever goes into marriage thinking, you know what, in 17 years, I want to get divorced and I want to be a single mom with all these kids. So to get to that place, it was, it wasn't just like all of a sudden I went crazy, but from the outside, people only saw, wow, here's this mom, everything looks like it's all together. And then they think the divorce was the moment. Mm-hmm. And it was probably two and a half, three years prior. And I had a couple moments. And one of them was the second time that the gas man came to my house to turn everything off. And I just decided at that moment, this can never happen again, because it was the deepest moment of shame and feeling out of control of my own life that I needed to do something to, to gain it back. And I realized life is going to pass me by no matter what. And I didn't want one year later for the same thing to happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if, if the divorce wasn't the rock bottom moment, what led to your divorce? Because like you said, nobody goes into marriage thinking I'm going to get divorced. Like I've been married for eight years now. And, you know, I like to think like I never will get divorced, but my parents got divorced. Other people get divorced. I'm now, I hope I don't get divorced, but you know, for me, it's a lot different than my husband. His parents never got divorced. So to him, it's not even an option. Like in his head, it's like, this will never happen where as a child of divorce, I'm like, it could happen. Right. (laughs) I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that because there still is a stigma around divorce. I think there is. I mean, I actually, I know there is. I grew up in, I, I, as I wrote in my book, like a good Christian home where a good Christian woman never gets divorced. I mean, it was the never like that. And I think, and even though I just heard you say that about your husband, I think that anytime we say, I'm never going to do something, that's the very moment we need to pay attention because it's like we've excluded ourselves from almost taking care of that space because we've thought, well, I'll never do that. Uh, I, I've, I've shared just, you know, some details of what led to it, but basically I would say that it became clear to me that in order to make the changes that were necessary for not only myself, but for my kids, I had to like untether. I don't know if that makes sense. I had to yeah. unclip and because you can only fight a certain battle. Like if you're stuck in a cycle, it's looping around more and more. And if one person has a foot on the brake and the other people, other person is trying to move forward you won't move anywhere. Mm. And it meant for me that I became that woman at 39 that everybody talked about. I mean, I was already writing online and it became, I because I hid the kind of the dysfunction, the poverty, I hid it from everybody, including my kids. So all of a sudden here I was in this spot. Now you talk to my oldest kids and they'll tell me, well, we kind of knew there was no money because we would we would get a birthday invite and we wouldn't tell you. So even as much as you hide it, right? I know. No, exactly. And I always say to people like a marriage can't work unless both, both people are willing to put in the effort that they need to. And I honestly think, I mean, people know listening that the very beginning of my marriage is really bad because I had come out of a toxic relationship and so I was still hurting. And so I, you know, verbally hurt my husband in the process and he stuck with me, but that was because I was improving and Mm -hmm. he was improving at the same time. But if I would refuse to improve and work on myself and do personal development and see a counselor and do all of those things, 
our marriage wouldn't have worked. Like we wouldn't be where we are. And so I like how you said you have to untether yourself if somebody is just willing to stay in one place and not willing to move forward and do the work, you can't do it for them. Right, right. You, you can't. And I could see the path. I could see the generational, like that, that teaching happening with the kids. I could see that they would learn an unhealthy view of what marriage was. And that to me was even more frightening that I didn't want them to see that, well, mom is in the, her room crying. She doesn't know what to do all the time. She's always worrying about money. I, I knew I needed to teach them that when there's a partner, part, like that partnership, it's not unhealthy and balanced this way. It has to be healthy. And in order to teach that, I actually had to break what they thought marriage was. Yeah. No, I agree with you completely. And we've said this on the podcast before. You can't, a child can't possibly know what a healthy relationship is if they're not modeled that. You know, right. if you, you grow up in a household where you do not see, you know, healthy communication, healthy relationships, then you don't know what it's like to be in one. I mean, I was a child of that and that's why my parents divorced. I never saw a healthy reflection of a relationship growing up. And, and, and it caused me a lot of strife in my relationships as an adult as well. So I'm really proud of you for noticing that and saying, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I want my children to see like, you don't have to stay stuck in this place. You are an important person and you need to make decisions to better yourself and, and better your family if you have a family. So what was it like being on your own in the beginning? Terrifying. That I would say that, I mean, I, that's the only word I have for that. I have lots of women that write me. And in the beginning, I tell them your only goal is to get through today. And I can remember the first weeks going, I'm on day three. I'm on two weeks. I'm on a month. I'm on all of these. And then I had several friends that I call them my truth tellers because I felt like I was nuts. I felt like it was in my head. I, I would doubt myself. I would have moments of irrational thinking, and they would say, no, you're on the right path. This is exactly right. It wasn't in your head. And I think that that is part of the unhealthiness that I dealt with is I was led to believe that I was the root of all these problems or different places. So for to have somebody else say to me, no, you're on the right path. I believe in you was so instrumental. So, I, I, but I, I, I freely admit it was the first year was a blur. It was like being underwater perpetually and dealing with not only my own doubts, but the doubts of others around me. And someone once asked me, well, what would you tell yourself about that first year? And I realized that I would give myself more grace, but I would also give grace to all the people around me that knew me in one way. And then all of a sudden I change it in front of them and I think I wanted them to be like, yay, I'm right here linking arms, but everything they knew about me was changing too. Right. And I needed, now I can see in hindsight, you know what? They had to go through this, almost this process of grief or, or understanding or figuring out what's going on. And I, I don't think I had as much grace probably because I was in complete survival mode. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, when people change and, and not even in a bad way, in like a good way, um, from what we expect, it's it's hard to 
accept that and to deal with that. I think of an example, it's not exactly, it's not even close to the same um, situation that you're in, but I have a friend who's getting ready to have a baby and I've only known her as a non, a non mommy. And I, all I can think is like, is motherhood going to change her? And you know, how will that change our friendship? And that sort of thing where, you know, you have to see that these people in your lives, when they change, you do have to kind of grieve the person that you knew, whether it was a good, bad, or indifferent kind of person and be able to transition and accept this new and the, and the people who can't, those are the people that end up falling off your radar. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the perfect analogy for a relationship or marriage or partnership is what a, who I was at 20. I'm certainly not going to be at 40. And I wouldn't tell my 10-year-old, you're going to figure out your life here when you're 14 and you're never going to change it. Yet right. somehow we think like as adults, we shouldn't change. And I, the, to me, a relationship is constantly evolving with the other person, being willing to move with them in that way. And if it's like, well, you're not who I met before, or you're so different, then there's a level, there's a block it. There's a space where that's not healthy because as humans, I don't think we're supposed to stay the same person for our entire life. I 100% agree. I am definitely not the same person I was 20 years ago. And I know like 20 years from now, I won't be the same person because in order to be a human and have a thriving life, you constantly are learning and growing and improving. If you don't, you stay in one place and you're stagnant and everybody else around you is learning, growing and improving. They kind of leave you in the dust. Right, right. And you know, you think about our kids, we're like, hey, try it out. If it doesn't work, no big deal. Try baseball. Try it for a couple of years. Yet with us, we're like, wow, I tried it and I don't like it. I'm a failure. I must not do anything. I can't do anything. And to me, the greatest adventure now is like, trying things I never thought I could do. Like I learned to love CrossFit just this last year. And truthfully, I think I love it because the people in the group pushed me to do stuff I never, I I mean, I would have eliminated as an option. Like I can't lift that. And they're like, yes, you can. And that to me is the power of, you know, good community is, is when they believe in you and they see something in you that you don't even see. I agree. I always say that it's really important to have a really solid support system, no matter who you are or what your life is like, uh, in order to be able to survive and thrive in life, you have to have those people mm-hmm. uh, because when, you know, shit hits the fan, you have to have those people who are willing to be like, you know what? It's okay. I'm here for you. What can I do? How can I support you? How can I help you? Because if you're all alone, it, you get stuck in that place and you don't move forward. Right. And I, you're so right, because I think here's the other part of it is we have to be willing to be that person for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I, moms all the time say to me, I feel so alone. And I'm said, well, you have to be the friend to somebody else that you need. You absolutely have to do it. And it also means that you have to put yourself in situations where you're with other women. Like you can't want to be, have a friend and then never go to yoga class or never go to preschool class. You have to like Put yourself out there and really work to be that friend. And it doesn't work otherwise. Hallelujah. I've been saying that too, because I have quite a few women in, in the community who are like, I don't have friends. How do I make friends? Like you, you got to go out and meet the women. They're not going to come to you. You have to go out and meet them. You have to be intentional about spending time with them. And you have to be willing to put in the work because relationships of any kind, including friendship, take 
time. They take work and you have to be willing to open up and be vulnerable with people, but also be willing to allow them to be vulnerable with you and support them. It's it's not a one-way street, no matter what relationship we're talking about. It's a two-way street. So I love that, that you said that about getting out there and meeting the people. Right. You absolutely did. I once heard somebody talk and said that if your two people are always expecting the other person to give you happiness, it's like two vacuum hoses attached to each other, sucking empty out of each other. And you have to not live that way. You have to actually live like, what can I give to the other person? And I, I think about my friends. I think about when I lived in Minneapolis, my, my friend Maria lived behind me and there's no joke. She would show up at my doorstep knock on the door. I would open the door. She'd have a bucket of cleaning supplies and she would walk right in. Like, cause she knew I'd be like, no, 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 no. And she'd just start cleaning because she knew, she knew I would say no, but she knew that I needed help. And the best way she could help me was in those, those ways of whatever cleaning the bathrooms for me during those single mom, scary early days. Yeah. Scary early days. I was a single mom for quite a few years, few years myself. And it was, it was terrifying because you're the sole provider. You're the yes. person doing all of the things and you have human beings, tiny human beings that depend on you. And you're like, I can't let them down. Right. I, you know what? I think there is that I can't let them down, but it's almost like you, you just have to be perfect. You don't, you don't have to be perfect in that. You just try your, I just remember thinking, I just have to do my best. And it was such a, balance because all the places I thought I couldn't manage everything, all of a sudden I was finding myself, like you described, managing everything, going to school, bedtimes, working, doing, doing it all, all the way through. And it surprised me at the level of strength that I did have that I dismissed. Yeah. A lot of times we don't realize what we have inside of us until we have to, you know, a lot of people will ask like, how can you do it all? And you're like, well, I just do. Cause I have to, there's no other choice. If, if I stop, then all these people that depend on me, it stops for them too. I have to keep going. So how did you, in those early days, how would you, you maintain that and keep going? How did you fuel your fire? A lot of caffeine. Is that a good answer? <laughs> <laughs> Um, great answer. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, the friends that kept me going, pushing forward. And it was a constant vision of where I wanted to go. And I would benchmark things along the way. And, uh, what you and I talked in the beginning about the stress of fuel, getting gas, Mm -hmm. uh, when you don't have money. And one of my benchmarks became the day when I could all of a sudden fill my gas tank on my van all the, the way. And it was a huge moment to me. Like I still today, seven years later, fill my gas all the way up. And it reminds me, look how far you've come. Because when you have to get gas and you pay in $2.48 change in the middle of winter, and and it's it's just like, I hated it. When it comes to the day when I can put $42 in and not stress, it's my reminder of where you move. And so how do you get through in the beginning? It's, it's tiny benchmarks. It's circling the good days, knowing I'm on day 20 and looking for what's great. And then just that kind of one step in front of another over and over. Yeah. That, uh, change in the middle of winter really hits home for me. Cause I remember scr- I was almost out of gas and I'm scrounging in my car to mm-hmm. find change wherever I could underneath the floor mats and in the ashtray. And I literally gave them like 
$3 worth of pennies. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I don't know why I had like $3 worth of pennies between my purse and my car, but I did. And they were so irritated, but I'm like, I have nothing. And right. I'm the same as you were. I mean, I always fill my tank all the way up. Like, unless of course I'm like, I'm waiting for it. Cause I'm like, I know this gas station down the road has better like, right, right, right. You know, costs. So I'm just going to fill it up enough to get there because sometimes I try to like push the line of the <laughs> empty yeah, tank. But then I fill it up and I'm like, you know what? 10 years ago, I couldn't fill up my gas tank. I mean, mm-hmm. I never had it full. There was never a time where it was over halfway full. Like that didn't exist. But now, like anybody listening who's been there can understand the joy of being able to say, I can fill up my gas tank anytime I want to fill up my gas tank. Yeah, it's it's this awesome experience of, I mean, it sounds so simple, but to turn on the gas tank or whatever and then sit in my van and wait for the click-click when it's done, I, I've just made a point of remembering and knowing and appreciating it. I mean, I've just, that's, that's how I've kind of moved forward, wanting to remember where I came from so that I don't ever take for granted where I am now. Even simple things like on Wednesdays when the garbage truck comes and picks up my garbage. I mean, it's huge to me because I lived times where I would like break things down and shove it in because there wasn't, there was no money for that. And now I'm just so grateful, but it also makes me, I guess, aware, aware, like we talked about with that lady with the cart of just kind of aware of others around me. And it, it gives this space of grace and kindness because I remember how appreciative I was of somebody treating me with kindness and as an equal human and as somebody with worth. And I want to live this life being that person that sees others no matter what the situation is and recognizes the intrinsic value. They may be in a situation that's dire and horrible, but there's a really good chance like we talked about in the beginning, nobody chooses that. Like, you know what? That'd be really fun. And what you need in that moment is you need somebody to believe in you and to treat you with compassion and empathy, but more than that, to just be kind. Exactly. And I love that you said that you try to remember because uh, sometimes, you know, I'm scrolling on social media and I see these judgmental posts and I'm like, you say that because you've never been in that situation. If you've been in that situation, you would never be able to look at another human being and say those nasty things to them because you could remember what it's like to be in their situation. You know, when, you know, other customers in the grocery store get frustrated because the woman ahead of us is using her EBT card and she runs out of money and, you know, somebody steps up and says, I'll pay the rest of our bill. That's an amazing, compassionate thing for somebody to do. And I've had the, I've had the, the opportunity to do that myself. And it warms my heart because I'm like, I was that person. And I think that when we've never, when people have never been in that situation, they can't understand. And so they lack that compassion a lot of times because they can't imagine the kind of struggle that is to not know that you can pay your bill. Right. Or to not know how you're going to feed everybody uh, on the the table. I I once uh, saw a graphic about kind of hidden poverty. It was about food for kids. So they looked up the county where you lived in and about a third of the kids in my county, they said probably went to school hungry. 
And it was, it was eye-opening to me. That was, I probably saw that nine years ago. We were talking a little bit about the, the hidden poverty. And I remember, you know, when my daughter was younger, I had to choose some days whether I was going to eat or she was going to eat. Like that, there were some days that I went to the store. I didn't have enough money. I only had enough money for one of us to eat dinner. And I'd have to buy something for her to eat. And so you were talking about how when you looked up the county that you lived in, there was a third of the kids that couldn't even afford Food. I mean, could imagine being in a and people listening, being in a situation where yeah, you, you know, choose: can your kids eat or you eat? Yeah, that situation it's it's crazy because you don't even realize that that's what's going on. And there were times where I would just like let the kids have extra, and I would just kind of choose not to. And I remember watching this movie called um, "It Was a Beautiful Mind," and there was a scene in that movie where the wife of the main star who was this boxer in the, in the late twenties are at, was deciding whether or not they wanted to eat. And I remember looking at it thinking there's so much beautiful unsaid poetry in the way they handled it. Like, you know what? I'm not hungry tonight. And then just putting the, pushing the food over for the kids. And, you know, thankfully I had people that would step up all the time and provide, they just knew we were struggling with finances and, there was another part of me that realized there needs to come a point where my friends and family, I wasn't always the one they had to help, that I needed to start taking control of that part of it. Like at a certain point, it, was, it just wasn't right to think, well, though the, somebody will bring us food. I knew it was a place where it was calling me to take charge. Yeah. So how did you go? People might be listening, might be thinking, well, how did you go from that? to where you are today? What has helped you along the way to get to where you are on this podcast today with, without having to worry about food insecurity, talking about, you know, hey, I have all these followers, these people that read my blog, and I go around the world talking. Like when, you know, 10 years ago, you probably weren't even thinking that you would even leave the area that you lived in. Uh, it was a lot of, over and over trying, not giving up. Um, it was, I would say it's faith in a future that didn't match the reality. That's the only way I can describe it. Like being okay with publishing something and it would hit maybe five people that day. And knowing that every inch that I tried for that day was an inch closer to where I wanted to get to. But it also meant that I could no longer deny my situation. I had to like pull the credit report. I had to see the, the I guess the demons, whatever I was battling, I had to come face to face with it and tell you if you're hiding from it, you don't even know what you're battling. I just knew there wasn't enough money. I needed to know exactly what I needed to do to solve it so that I could could take the steps. And anybody that says you can solve it in 10 steps over the next two months or three, 30 minutes a day, it just doesn't happen that way. It's a lot of tenacity. It's a lot of deciding what's the right order to tackle things. Because if you wait for everything to seem like it's perfect, where you can attack it all at once, it's not going to happen. So it would be being willing to pay off one thing, being willing to fight for one space and gradually those spaces more and more cleared up. Yeah, I feel like we're in this society where we want it all now, we want it all at once, and we're not willing to take the time or the effort to put in because, you know, in the very beginning, anything's really hard. Any change is really hard, and you can't implement it all at the same time because you'll just 
fall flat on your face. It's like you said, these little incremental changes that you're just going to do this thing and you're going to focus on this thing and you're going to get it accomplished. And then I'll focus on the next thing because I can't focus on all of the things all the time. That's where we burn out. Truthfully is, I really believe that's why people burn out with new year resolutions is instead of just choosing one, they have 20 different things that are all consuming. And to break a habit, it's a good solid six weeks. And we can't, if you're trying to break 10 habits or, or start 10 new things, you're, you, you will just burn out. And it's more of grace for it. No, I completely agree. I always say, you know, when people set that New Year's Eve goal where I'm going to lose all this weight, they, you know, decide they're going to work out five days a week. They're going to eat clean and they're going to do all these things or give up alcohol. And I'm like, that's not how that works. Because if you try to do it all, you're just going to burn yourself out. Well, and, and truthfully, you have to be able to like, if you've you have to be able to like deal with yourself. If you give everything up and want to change yourself completely, it's like every kind of paradigm and way of relating to your yourself is gone. And that's where this, I believe the struggle comes in. And it was like, I remember one time I was like, I'm going to give up coffee oh, for something. And my friends were like, seriously, you cannot do that to yourself right now. You're under so much stress. And they knew that that was just my like, one thing I had been allowing myself to, I don't know, feel normal with in those crazy times. And I was so thankful for them them saying to me, that's okay. It's, you don't have to give up everything at this moment. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I literally had to come to the realization like a week or two ago that, you know, in this stage of my life, in this season of my life of this move and, you know, my husband's living in Connecticut and I'm living in Virginia and I'm taking care of these kids, you know, all this stuff going on selling our house, that this may not be the time where I am on it about all of the things because I just don't have the bandwidth. I just don't have it. And I think we have to be, like you said, realistic about that, that, you know, this would not be the time for me to be like, I want to give up coffee and I'm going to stop drinking wine and I'm going to eat all of the healthy things. I mean, I still eat predominantly healthy, but you know, there's times where I'm so tired at the end of the day doing all the things and I'm like, I'm ordering pizza tonight. And I give myself grace to do that because I'm in that season of life where I just have to, to make it through. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, what's funny about that is you also didn't say, and I'm going to go train for a marathon right now because you absolutely know that this is the season where you can't do that. It would be like setting yourself up to fail at the moment. Now you're going to probably say, but I am training for a marathon in the middle of my move. But you know, there is like, (laughs) there is this like realization that I tell moms too, like you have to know what season you're in. Mm-hmm. in order to be able to do the changes. Like when you have kids that are three and under, it, that's probably not the season for some of those crazy things. Um, and it's just kind of balancing out and knowing where you are. Yeah. When you have kids three and under, you're in survival mode. <laughs> um, you know what? I call it keep them alive years of motherhood because that is all you're doing. Like my teenagers right now know pretty much for the most part, not to put their hand on the hot stove, but little kids, you're, you're constantly having to follow them around. You're just not ever able to have a moment where you can go into a room and just be chill. 
Yeah. And just let's be honest in that time, they're not sleeping through the night half the time and you're having to deal with the irrational fears and potty training. You know, I told people that I love the ages from like five or six to like 12 because the teenage years have been, I have one teenager and it's been interesting. She's a peach. That's what I tell people. (laughs) Nice. That's good. But I like the like six to 12 because they're, they're, they're kind of self-sufficient. I mean, obviously not to the point where you can just be like, I'm leaving for the weekend, but they're kind of self-sufficient. You don't have to follow them around. They know how to do the things for themselves. And they're just kind of low key at that point. I like those ages because like, uh, those are my favorite. That's just me. And they still think you're good. They still think you're cool. They still love to come up to you. I mean, that's, been the hardest part for me with teenage years, especially probably 13 to 16, mm-hmm. where they're like, I don't know about you. And then the older they get, they start to turn around. And then when they hit their early 20s, all of a sudden, I become this awesome person that knows all this stuff again. So yeah, I'm with you. Like, I love my nine-year-old right now, because for the most part, I I am his everything. And I just like keep looking at him thinking, please, please don't change. But I, I mean, I know he's going to hit 13 and things are going to change. Yeah. That puberty and the teenage hormones is like, what happened to my child? Like, why did they grow like three heads here? What's going on? Like my oldest is 16 and I feel like she's starting to come back around a little, but man, those couple years were really rough. Oh, they are because they're they can be quiet and they don't say anything. How was your day? Fine. What did you do in school? Nothing. I mean, it's just so like, and I just have to remind myself all the time of try to remember when you're a teenager and you thought your parents knew nothing. Like, it's I just have to tell myself it's not me. They're just going through this process of trying to figure out who they are. And what they need from me is they need me to not be their best friend at that moment. They just need me to be their constant, to be their mom, to show up, to love them, to establish the rules and be okay. I guess I had to become okay with whatever space they were in. I mean, I want respect, but sometimes if they don't want to talk, it's not about me. It's just the season they're in. Exactly. So as a mom of seven, before we wrap up the podcast, how would you give the mamas out there some, some sage advice? Like <laughs> you've been through the things. What are some tips that you could give for the mamas out there who haven't been through the things yet on, and how to be a, a decent parent? Like we don't even have to go to like a phenomenal parent. Decent. I, I would say that... <laughs> To be a good mom, it just means that you love them on all the days. There's like, it's good days and bad days and normal days and hard days. And really all all you have to do is show up. Um, It's not about being perfect. One of the things I tell people all the time is if you're striving for perfection, you'll just drive yourself crazy. So it's really about showing up, loving them, just being their constant and knowing that there's going to be some really hard days, but there's also going to be some really great days. And there's going to be a whole lot of normal every single day, I guess, just normal days. And that it doesn't, the moments that end up mattering, which I found from my oldest kids, aren't the moments that I thought would be the ones like the spectacular gifts 
or vacations, it's been the simplest moments. My oldest wrote me a note on Mother's Day and she brought up the smallest things like playing cards at the lake or that I taught them to make uh, this crepe with berries. I mean, it was just so simple and that's what mattered to them the most. Yeah, I love that you said that. I'm actually getting a matching tattoo of my friend that says perfectly imperfect because I feel like that's how we do life. Like you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a perfect wife. You don't have to be a perfect mom. You don't have to be a perfect friend, but you just show up. You do the best you can. And and that honestly means doing the best you can, not like phoning it in and being like, you know what? I have them fed. We're good. But like loving them, like you said, and saying, you know, you are my child. I love you. I may not like you right now, but I love you so much. And I'm going to be here for you wherever you need me. And I, I love how you, you put that. So as we wrap, wrap up the podcast today, Rachel, what is one thing or a collection of things that you'd like to leave the inspired women audience with? Uh, I just want them to know they're probably doing super hard on ourselves. We, we have this voice that tells us I'm failing, I'm not doing enough. And just to pay attention to that voice and to really change it to, you know, I'm enough, I'm worthy, I can do hard things. And that bravery and motherhood, it's not in those giant moments. A lot of times it's in that day-to-day moment when you are exhausted beyond belief, you've been up with them all night and the alarm goes off and you decide, you know what, I'm going to get up today. I'm going to keep fighting for them. I'm going to keep pushing through. And honestly, those are the moments that matter the most. So to everybody listening, they're a lot braver um, than they probably think. And they have that deep bravery within them. I love that. I, 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 when you said that, it brought, brings up, you know, when my kids are sick and they throw up in the middle of the night and I'm so irritated because I just want sleep. Mm-hmm. But then the next morning I get up and, you know, I realize this little person threw up last night. <laughs> and it's not their fault and they're just sick. And so, you know, you just have to be that mom that's like, you know, I love you. It's okay. You didn't do right. anything wrong. It just happened and, and go with it. It, it's so true. And I think you were so right because there are times where I get so frustrated about those things. And then it's always, I come back to them and say, you know what? I am just as human as you are. And I shouldn't have responded that way. And I love you so much. And I hope you can uh, forgive me for those moments where I was irrational and like appreciate the moments where I show up and try. Yes. Apologies are so powerful all around, but especially with our children because we are showing them what it's like to be human. So Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.